0: This is an incredible passage. Um, I had so much fun and was just blessed immensely by getting to dive into it this week because the story is incredible. Um, in, in fact, it kind of reminded me of this movie from back in the late nineties outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. Anyone see that? Anyone want to cop to it? Admit that you saw it. Um, it's, it's not a great movie, but what I love about it is it explains, um, the origins of this outbreak of this this disease that that goes viral. So the movie kind of starts out and you have the the character going over to Africa and what else do you do when you're in Africa but buy a pet monkey? And you bring the monkey home with you and sure enough, as cliche as it sounds, the monkey ends up biting the guy and later on, a scene later, he's kissing his girlfriend and he's passing on the virus. The virus is now being spread and the rest of the movie is just a further evolution and progression as the virus continues to spread out of control and people begin to lose uh kind of a sense of control and understanding of how are we going to rein this in as the virus breaks out there's an outbreak of the virus and in one of the scenes which is is kind of gross but it kind of does a a good job of showing it there's that slow motion where the guy kind of sneezes or laughs and and you see kind of the saliva go forward it just the other person contracts it and takes it in and 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 there is there's just this contraction as it as it breaks out and why i really like the movie is is you, you get to see who patient zero is. You get to see where the whole thing began. Something as, as, as ma- uh, mammoth and, 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 and widespread as a virus that, that potentially can infect the entire world starts with this one guy and a monkey. We, we, we go all the way back to the origins. And, and we all love origin stories. We love to see how things began. And the story of the church. Why are you and I 2015 sitting here tonight in rainy Seattle? Well, there's an origin story. There is a time and a place in which all of this began. All of it started. And the passage we're looking at tonight, we're encountering patient zero. We're encountering the origins of Christianity. We're seeing how the whole thing began. And while we think of sometimes something going viral or a virus as as negative, what if there was a positive connotation of a spread, a reckless spread that no one could control, that no one was governing, that no one could handle, that really was filled with love and joy and the restoration of redemption and shalom and new life and a message of hope and grace and reconciliation and restoration. And what I love about it too is we begin to get a glimpse and an insight as to how Jesus wanted his message to go forth. It wasn't necessarily through writing in the sky, which sometimes we think, why didn't God just get everyone's attention by writing a big message in the clouds or maybe getting a big bullhorn or filling up large stadiums, but rather he comes and he takes his message viral, and it spreads. And what we see throughout the early church is is, is it can't be contained. As much as the Roman Empire, they, they stand in great opposition to this this guy named Jesus and his followers who begin to recklessly love other people, and their message of hope and grace and the gospel spreads. And it goes forward, and no one can control it. it. It takes on a life of its own, and for the first 200 years, the church is completely unleashed. And the message of the gospel spreads, and it goes viral. And if you're to look at the the rest of the church, the global church, even today, you'll see that the gospel is still spreading, that it's still spreading like a virus. If you go go to Asia, the gospel is is booming. In fact, the, the government over there doesn't really know what to do with itself or how to contain Christianity, um, as A lot of sociologists now estimate that there's more Christians in China than there are in the United States. Or if you are to go to South America or Africa, the gospel is booming. And the message of the gospel continues to spread. And here in America, if we're honest, sometimes it can feel like it's been quarantined, that we've found a way to contain this gospel message. So I want us to go back and get a glimpse of where Patient Zero was, how this whole thing began and also this very viral nature of the gospel itself in our passage tonight. So let me pray real quick, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you for, uh, for your love, for your grace. I just ask for all of us that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and open hearts the message and the words that you would want us to hear tonight, that we would truly be challenged and transformed and changed by you as we encounter you and we encounter your good news. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're starting off, as Drew said, in John 1, verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one near in front of you. And John is about two-thirds of the way through. No shame whatsoever. If you don't really know, just poke someone next to you, and they'll help you find it as well. So here's setting the scene. Last week, Drew was telling us about this guy named John the Baptizer who was a bit of a maniac. Um, He was just off the charts, kind of gnarly and wild and out there. And he had one purpose only. Uh, and that was to, to be a clarion call to let people know to make the path straight for the coming of the Messiah. He wanted people to definitively know that after 400 years of silence, of not hearing from God, God was now on the scene in Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God is what he said. And John the Baptizer opens our passage saying the exact same thing. So we're going to a new day and in verse 35 it says, The next day John was there again with his two disciples who are these two disciples one of them his name is Andrew and the other one is actually John the writer of our gospel he never names himself he's a pretty humble guy from what i think he never names himself throughout his entire gospel but this is him so it's it's John the writer of our gospel not John the baptizer and, and Andrew and they're turning away from John the baptizer because he says this when Jesus was passing by John goes right back like a broken record he plays his one track and says look Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. He's reminding people. It's like he can't get off of this message. He's reminding them once again of who Jesus is. And so what do the two disciples do? What do John and Andrew do? This is awesome. I love this. They kind of begin to stalk Jesus. They're kind of creeping on him a little bit. They're walking behind his heels. And so it says when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. But what I like is they don't necessarily engage Jesus or go right up to him. They're a little bit behind. They're just kind of checking him out. They're watching the way he walks. And Jesus, you know, you know, you can tell when someone's behind you or when they're watching you or when maybe they're paying attention to you. And so this is great. Jesus, turning around, says to them, what do you want? And I love it because he says it. I, I just hear it in my mind. as a very inquisitive question. What what do you guys want? What, What is it? You guys are following me. I, I know I can see you out of the corner of my eye. What is it? What is it that you're attracted to? What is it that you want? And see, the temptation for John and Andrew might have been, hey, John the baptizer sent us over and he told us we're supposed to hang with you now. Or maybe it was, we're upgrading in rabbis. We heard that your stock is soaring, so we're going to latch on to you as you continue to make your meteoric, meteoric rise to lead the nation of Israel. What Jesus is doing is he's getting right to their motives. I love this because he doesn't say to them, what do you know? Or how good are you? Or, what have you done? Instead, he goes right to the heart. What do you want? What do you want? These are his first words in the entire gospel, and they go right to the heart. They go right to the motives. And it's beautiful because this same question is just as applicable to you and I today, 2015 years later. What do you want? Why are you coming to Jesus? Why are you seeking? Why are you searching? Because it's always our motivations. It's always getting to the core of what we really want that will decide even how we see Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're skeptical of the whole Jesus story and you'd consider yourself irreligious. And you'd consider yourself, I don't really know about this whole church thing, Jesus thing, Christianity thing. And inside of you, there's there's a desire, if you're honest. What you want is freedom. Freedom from moral controls or someone telling you what to do or how you ought to live your life and spend your money and spend your Friday nights. And maybe you're sitting here and you grew up in church, and what you really want is to have Jesus pat you on the back and tell you you've lived a really moral and righteous life. But Jesus has none of it with either side. He's not going to fit into my agenda or your agenda. He's going to tell us to fit into his agenda. Jesus won't be the genie or butler of anyone, but instead calls us to bow our knees to serve and to follow him. It's a beautiful depiction because it also includes and reminds us that you don't have to even know that much to begin following Jesus. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to read a bunch of theology books. You don't have to read every argument for and against God before you can begin to simply follow. Because half the time, the challenge with following Jesus isn't what you don't know or what you do know or those little nagging questions, but it's more about what do you desire? What do you want? What do you really want? Are you seeking after comfort? Are you seeking after power? Are you seeking after approval? Jesus is no one who will kowtow and serve our agenda, but instead invites us in this new life where we get to serve His agenda, where we get to be His people. So what do they do? I love this. This is great. They say, Rabbi. Rabbi, which means teacher. So they have a proper authoritative view of who Jesus is. Where are you staying? Which, to me, when I first read that, it seems a little bit like a pivot. Jesus is going right for the heart. He's asking them a tough question. Have you ever had anyone ask you a tough question? You just try to change the subject really rapidly. It seems like that's what they're doing. But they're not. Um, what's actually going on here is they're saying, we would like to share a meal with you. We'd like to, we'd like to hang out. Can, can we do that, Jesus? We'd like to spend some more time with you. We'd like to get to know you. We'd like to see what you're all about. John the baptizer told us to start, start come following you. And we'd like, to get to know you. And so what does Jesus do? I love Jesus' heart. Jesus doesn't turn people away. Instead, he invites them in. And that goes for all of us. Jesus doesn't turn you away. He draws you closer. He beckons you. It's a message of inclusiveness that all of you, no matter where you are, how far you are from God, how broken you are, how jacked up your life is, there's an invitation to draw near. And so Jesus says, come, come, and you will see. So he invites them. He invites them to where he's staying, and they share a meal. And and then what it tells us is that they spend the next day together. They spend the next day together. They spend time together. And this is a beautiful depiction because what Jesus is showing is his method is to start with every individual because every life matters. Every individual matters. You would think if Jesus was knowing, I'm going to start this global movement that's going to go throughout the next 2,000 years of human history, I need to do better than starting with just two guys. That's not a very good recruitment strategy, but Jesus realizes, no, it starts one life at a time. The people right there in front of you, the people that God has called you to love, the people that God has called you to serve, and all of us, all of us can emulate this. There's people right there in front of us. There's people right there in our lives that we can serve, that we can love, that we can connect with, and you can't short-circuit discipleship. There's no way around it. There's no Fast lane, so to speak, of becoming a a super mature follower of Jesus, but it's relationship, time spent, time together, connection. That's what Jesus is inviting them into. He's saying, let's spend time together. Let's get to know each other. And so verse 39 says this. After Andrew and John spend some time with Jesus, they go out. I love this. They go right out, and they begin to talk to Peter. So Peter is Andrew's brother, and this is what it says, verse 40. Read along with me. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. I love this. So Andrew, what does Andrew do? Andrew runs right home and he finds his brother and he says, Simon, you're not going to believe this. We, we found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. This is always how the gospel spreads. This is always how good news spreads. I don't know about you, but maybe when you see a good movie or when you go to a new restaurant or you have a great connection or awesome experience, you go and tell those closest around you. You begin to share. That's the model. That's what's going on here. And family, this is a beautiful depiction, too, of how important and how much the family matters. At Redemption Church, we love the family, and here's why. We want to invest in families. We want to see families become this great incubator of disciple-making because inside families, you have proximity, and you have frequency, and you have time, and you often also have transparency. So moms and dads, we, we love Redemption Kids, and we want to do more over the coming years to really invest in that because it's in those relationships, it's in those moments, it's in those times around the dinner table or the, or the drive to soccer practice, whatever it might be, that discipleship really begins to take place, that the, 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 the catchiness, the stickiness of your values and what you love and the ideas of grace and mercy and justice really are transferred. They're not done in just a document or an assignment or a piece of homework. And for those of you who maybe you're far away from family, that's where the church is supposed to be a family. I believe that's why Jesus time and time again says, the church, we are the people, we are the family of God. Because when you become a Christian, you get a new family. So even if your family growing up was broken, even if your family right now is going through a really hard season, you get God's family. You get God's people, and that's why we love groups so much. We love to see people gathered during the week so that we begin to love one another. We begin to know each other's names. We begin to care and serve one another because it's inside those groups that we are most powerfully transformed and changed. Think about, who do you listen to most carefully? You listen to those who you believe have credibility, people that you have relationship with. So that influence, I love that Andrew goes right to Simon and he tells them, we've found the Christ. We've found the Messiah. All the difference in the world between the random, proselytizing Jehovah's Witness or Mormon guy knocking on your door or your brother and sister who you love and trust. Who are you going to listen to? And all of us have the opportunity to reach out to those that God's given us influence with, to transfer gospel truths through our relationship. Picking it up, Jesus looks at Simon. This is great. I love Jesus. He's just He's the boldest dude ever. He just doesn't mess around. And he says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which in translated is Peter. So Jesus goes right up to Simon. And you understand, Simon is a pretty ordinary dude. And what we find out about him throughout the rest of the gospel narrative is he's not an all-star. Like Simon's not like first draft if you were putting together a, a global church-wide movement, missionary uh, staff of people. I mean, Simon would not be the guy who makes the first cut. He's a little impulsive. He likes to cut people's ears off. He's a little reckless. And then when it comes down to it, he gets all cowardly. So, si- I mean, Simon's not like, man, of course Jesus picked that guy. Simon's just a very ordinary dude. He would not have made the list of any rabbis out there. But Jesus, Jesus sees something in Simon that he doesn't even see in himself. Because Simon's just a very ordinary fisherman. The blue collar guy working his job and along comes Jesus, and he gives them a new name. Now, here's what we need to understand about names. Here's the significance of it, especially in this culture and this day and age that, that, that Jesus and Simon are in, is when you name someone, when you name someone, you're claiming ownership over them. Now, we understand this concept a little bit even today. When you guys had, uh, if you have kids in this room, when, when, when you had your, your, your sweet little baby, boy or girl, the hospital and the government did not name your kid. You got to name them. Because they belong to you. They're your child. They're under your authority. They're under your dominion. Or if you started your own company or your own business, you're the one who gets to name it because you're in control. John the Baptizer said earlier in John 1, the one who's coming talking about Jesus, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. This is an incredibly powerful phrase because what he's saying there and what he's conveying to us is, is, is I'm not even fit to be a slave to Jesus. Because even disciples, even followers of a rabbi would never be asked to untie the sandals of their teacher. Only slaves would do that. That was the work of, of a slave. So John the baptizer is saying, I'm not even fit to do that. And what's going on here is Jesus is coming up to Simon Peter and saying, I want to invite you to be my follower. Not my slave, not just my servant, but I want to invite you to come along with me. And and I see things in you. I, I know things about you. I understand things about your story and what you're gonna be a part of that you can't even imagine. I mean, imagine if Jesus would have dropped on him at that moment. You're gonna be the guy who gets crucified upside down after starting the church and leading over three thousand people to Christ at Pentecost. Peter's eyes would have popped out of his head, probably. He would have been like, right, wait, I'm going back to fishing. This is too much. Like, I'm out. He just would have been, no, thank you. But but Jesus saw that in him. What is Jesus seeing you? Because when you become a follower of Jesus, you get a new identity, just like Simon did. Simon's neater name goes from, uh, goes from Simon to, to Peter, the rock. And when you become a Christian, you get a new identity. You become beloved. You become child of God. You become the one that Jesus loves. You become his friend. You have a new identity. You no longer have to work for your approval. You no longer have to earn your love. You no longer have to wonder, do you measure up? Are you good enough? Does anyone care? Which, if we're honest, when a lot of us lay our heads down on our pillow at night, these are the exact things we're asking ourselves. Will this pain ever go away? Does anyone notice? You have a new name. You you have a you have a dad who who owns you. And because because he owns you, he gives you a new name and a new identity. Peter would go on to do absolutely incredible things. So we see the viral spread continue. In verse 43, it's the next day. I guess Jesus needed a night to get some sleep, and he picks up the action in the next day. Verse 43, Jesus is right back at it. He's going to go find some more guys. And he says, Jesus decided to leave Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me, which I love. So Philip didn't necessarily have a relational tie to anyone. He's just hanging out. And Jesus comes over and just bops him upside the head and says, you're going to start following me. I love this because while I believe and I think the pattern is, is that the gospel typically has a viral nature in which it travels through relationships. Every once in a while, God just supernaturally goes after who he wants to go after. My story was a lot like that. I wasn't necessarily tied to any Christians or anything like that, but but my life was, was a wreck. I was in all sorts of pain. I was suffering from depression. I just experienced some really significant losses in my life, and I could feel God, in a way, haunting me, pursuing me, chasing after me. C.S. Lewis talks about his conversion story, uh, theologian, great writer, writer of the Narnia stories. And he says he felt like there was a hound of heaven who was pursuing him and would not let him go away. Beautiful depiction and illustration. If God wants you, He's going to get you. God always gets His man or His woman. And He relentlessly pursues and He woos and He comes after you with wave of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So Philip, Philip joins right up, and and the fun continues, because this is great. What I love about this, too, don't lose sight of this, okay? This this is so important. We're going to talk about this at the end in just a couple minutes. Um, When he's talking to Philip, he doesn't necessarily say, pray a prayer or or sign off on on that I'm God. He says, follow me. Follow me. Jesus is interested in us today also following him. So while praying a prayer and giving your life to Christ and having a conversion moment and getting baptized, they're beautiful, sacred, incredible things. But the win, the, the, the thing that we as a church are after is to see you follow Jesus, to see you walk with Jesus. I would love for us to year in, year out, decade in, decade out, just follow Jesus people, even when we don't necessarily know what the next step looks like, or how it's all going to end, or where we're going to go from here, or what's going to happen, we still say, Jesus we will follow, we'll trust you. Because when you look at this, Philip, Andrew, John, they weren't being given guarantees of what was going to happen next. When you become a Christian, it's not like all of a sudden it all gets unfolded in front of you, a master plan from this moment until death of exactly how your life is going to go. In fact, sometimes it just gets more confusing. It gets more cloudy. It gets more and more ambiguous. Because Jesus isn't necessarily interested in giving you just answers. He wants to bring you into relationship. He's saying, lean on me. Trust me. Come near me. You can follow me. Our following, our trusting of Jesus, really gets meted out in those moments of pain, of confusion, of isolation suffering, frustration. That's where we really find out, Jesus, do I actually believe you're good? Do I actually believe that you can be trusted? I mean, I just, what were some of these guys thinking as they would face a martyr's death a couple years later? Um, anyway, let's get back to our text. Verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So what I like about this is Philip, Philip has a friend named Nathaniel, and you can tell from the conversation, because when Philip goes to find Nathaniel, he starts referencing Moses. So in some way, he's saying, hey, I think you and I, me, Philip, and Nathaniel, I think they're they're kind of theology geeks, I think they're theology buddies, they like to talk shop about like, hey, what's the Messiah, and where's he coming from, and what can we learn from Moses? So the way that Philip introduces who Jesus is to Nathanael is he references Moses. He's trying to fit him in to the Old Testament story. And I like this. And he's saying, this is the guy. Uh, you and I, we've probably sat around, we've speculated, we've had conversations. When is God going to show up? When are things going to get different? When is God going to finally come reveal himself? We believe a Messiah is coming. When's it going to happen? So they're probably theology buddies. They're theology geeks. They, they like to talk about these things. And, and here's the thing, though. Nathaniel, he's disappointed. Let's just say Jesus does not meet his expectations. And you'll find time and time again, especially in the gospel narratives, that Jesus often does not meet people's expectations. He often lets them down. They're frustrated by who he is and how he appears. Um, look at Judas. Judas's biggest issue wasn't necessarily that he was a money grubber. His biggest issue is that Jesus would not do what he wanted him to do. Judas wanted Jesus to get a political coup going on where they could overthrow the Roman Empire. He wanted national and political and governmental power, and Jesus was saying, that's not what I'm about. That's not my agenda. That's not what I'm here to do. And that made Judas quite disillusioned and frustrated. So Jesus often surprises us. Jesus often doesn't perform or do what we would expect him to do. Here's Philip's complaint. And Philip's a bit of a a skeptic, which I can identify with to a degree. But here's his complaint. Nazareth, he says in verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth. Kind of like saying Arkansas. Arkansas. Can anything good come from Arkansas? I I don't know. I've never been to Arkansas. Maybe it's awesome. Um, Crystal and I, we used to live in Denver. And there was this town called Greeley, Colorado, just podunk. Small town, agricultural place. Adam probably knows about Greeley, Colorado. The thing about Greeley, Colorado is it's like the meatpacking hub of the Rocky Mountain region. And if there is snow on the horizon and you get this cold northerly wind coming in, you're going to smell this meatpacking meets agricultural funk that just blows all the way into Denver and the whole town begins to smell. And so people never would have associated anything good could come from Greeley. In fact, usually Greeley, the only thing going on up there was a lot of Toby Keith videos, People may be getting E. coli. And they also had these things called um, death metal goat roasts. Because I guess if you're listening to death metal, the only natural thing for you to do then is to roast a goat. So that's what goes on in Greeley. Now, if you were to come to me and say the next president is coming from Greeley or your, your senator is coming from Greeley, there would have been an aura of suspicion for people in Denver. That's just how it was. So that's what's going on here. They're like, nothing good comes from Nazareth. We, we really didn't expect the Messiah to show up in Nazareth. We, we thought maybe Jerusalem or somewhere more cosmopolitan or metropolitan. Maybe that's where he would show up, but surely not Nazareth. It's just, it's, it's fun to see that. And what I like about it is here's what Philip does. Philip actually avoids the temptation that I think a lot of us or the trap that a lot of us fall into of beginning to have this big argument where you try to prove who Jesus is, and you have to give them 20 reasons to believe, and before you know it, you're like, man, i that's all I got. Okay, you in or you out? I mean, you want to believe or not? I mean, you made your best pitch, and what does Philip do? Philip just says, come and see. Come see for yourself. Come check it out. I like it. Pressure's off. Um, I don't have to prove to you who Jesus is. Just come see for yourself. Once again, the best things in life are worth experiencing. Uh, my daughters do it all the time. Like it, It's a crapshoot when I hear from the other room, Daddy, come see this. It could, it could be a whole host of things. It can be a whole range from, you know, something that we're, we're going to need some rubber gloves to clean up to maybe they made me a drawing and anywhere in between, but they want me to come and see. They want me to experience it. They want me to be near them. And as we invite our friends and our family members and our coworkers and the people around us to consider Christ, to hear more about the gospel, to know who Jesus is, it's much more compelling often to just tell them to come and see. Check out church. Just read the Bible. Consider it for yourself. Don't necessarily just hear from bloggers and your friends and your, your professor, but read, reach out, see who Jesus is. Let him speak for himself. Come to my life group. Meet some other believers. See what our life is really like. See how we really live. Come and see. Verse forty-seven. Um, this is great. When Nathaniel, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, "Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit." How do you know me? Nathaniel asks. So he's a little bit spooked out. Does Jesus, you know, is he doing some some Facebook stalking and finding out what Nathaniel was all about? know, um, he was doing some divine stalking. He knew who Nathaniel was. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. I love this. Jesus is pursuing Nathaniel with grace and truth. He's letting him know, I see you. I know who you are. I know your skepticism, and it doesn't deter me. I'm not turned off by it. It doesn't exclude you. It doesn't disqualify you. In fact, it means I'm going to come after you all the more. So Nathaniel was pretty impressed by this I mean Nathaniel's actually a pretty easy sell verse 49 then Nathaniel declared Rabbi you are the son of God you are the king of Israel Nathaniel goes all the way from super cynic skeptic to like no way anything good comes from Nazareth to you're the son of God King of Israel I mean this guy flipped like that I love how quickly he turns his script Nathaniel was ripe and ready gospel fruit he just needed to hear. And meet Jesus. There's people all around us that just need to hear and meet Jesus. And they're way more right and ready than we sometimes imagine and give credit for. Jesus, I love his response. He's actually kind of, I think he's actually making fun of Nathaniel a little bit. He says, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? Basically, that's all it took? I just had to tell you I saw you under a fig tree? That's it? Like, that's all? I love this because Jesus actually ratches it up he goes from there and he says you will see greater things than that he then added very truly i tell you you will see heaven open and the angels of god ascending and descending on the son of man okay so this is a really interesting statement what is jesus getting at what is this all about because this seems like a weird sci-fi scene from a movie maybe a b movie but what is this all about actually what Jesus is doing is Jesus is actually referencing Genesis 28. Genesis 28, you get the story of Jacob. So Jacob is this guy in the book of Genesis, and he's a bit of a swindler, and he's quite a deceiver. And Jacob has just got done conning his older brother out of his inheritance, and he's now running for his life because his older brother Esau is strong and burly and angry, and he's aggressively coming after Jacob. So Jacob is all alone. He's desperate. He's scared. He's confused, he's depressed, and he feels completely like his life is done for. In fact, this is how bad it is. It tells us right in Genesis 28 that as he's going to sleep and he's about to have this dream, he uses a pillow for a rock. If you're ever at a place in life where you have to use a rock for a pillow, you know you're in a rough spot. And so Jacob goes to sleep, uses this pillow for a rock, and as he goes to sleep, he has this dream. He has this incredible vision, this dream, in which he begins to see heaven break open, the skies break open, and a ladder comes down, and angels descend upon the earth. And the imagery is is clear. What, what, What it's getting at in Genesis 28 is that there will come a time, there will come a place where God, where God will show up in human flesh, and He'll begin to dwell with His people, and He will rip open the heavens, and He will come, and He will no longer tolerate what's going on in this planet, the brokenness, the sin, The suffering, the pain, the hurt, and he'll break in from heaven down to earth. You can't, you can't even escape thinking of Jesus' prayer where he tells us, on earth, as it is in heaven. That's exactly Jesus' point. I've come to make it on earth as it is in heaven. You, you will not even begin to imagine what I have in store. I am God rupturing space and time so that heaven would slowly begin to descend upon earth so that shalom will slowly begin to break out that it will go viral that it will begin to creep out to the nations because I will be the one I am God in the flesh I am God with you this is his strongest proclamation yet that if you want to see who God is if you want to know who God is all you have to do is look at Jesus he is the very depiction he is the imprint He is the image. He is the photo of God. You have seen Yahweh, Nathaniel. I am God breaking in. I am heaven coming down. What I have in store will blow your mind. John 1 is this incredible depiction and building up of Jesus' fulfilling promise after promise from the Old Testament. I'm the son of God, I'm the lamb of God, I'm the king of Israel, I'm the final king of Israel, I'm the perfect king of Israel, there won't be another king of Israel. I'm the son of man, which is a title from Daniel 7, saying, I have all authority to rule and reign over everything. And then finally he tells us, I am Yahweh, I'm breaking open heaven, and heaven is coming down. God has heard your cries, God has heard your, seen your tears, God knows about your hurts and your sorrows, and heaven is coming down and that's the message of the gospel that continues to today that we we are part of this viral movement in which the gospel continues to go forward and because there's an inbreaking of heaven down to this earth that Jesus is with us that his spirit has taken up residence in my life and in your life we get to continue to spread this good news how does it happen how does it happen? Well, there are some incredibly awesome things that I think we learned here. And I want to point out just a few of them, okay? Hopefully you guys got a handout when you came in too. If you didn't, uh, Greg and Mallory have one and they can get one too. Um, but what I want us to see is that for too long, the church has been at its worst when it tries to professionalize ministry and quarantine and contain who gets to do what when it comes to talking about Jesus and spreading the gospel. So when the church becomes institutionalized, when it becomes professionalized, when you think that a pastor or just a a, a clergy of some sort gets to do all the ministry, that's when the church is at its worst. But when we look at the method, when we look at the method we've seen throughout our passage today, we get this incredible depiction that all of us are, are true ministers, that you and I, we are good newsers to the people that God has placed us with. And it's not asking us to do anything super extreme or out of the ordinary, but it's asking us to take actually the very good news that's welled up inside of us, that's given us new life, that heaven has opened up, that the God of the universe wants to see shalom spread throughout this world, we get to share that with others. And every story that we looked at today, whether it was John and Andrew, what did Jesus do? He invited them in. Whether it was with Simon, where Jesus goes right up to him and gives him a new identity, or whether it was with Philip, where he just went and tapped him on the shoulder, or whether it was with Nathaniel, where he went after him and he fought through his skepticism, what do you see? You see pursuit. Pursuit. Pursuing is such an important part of us making disciples, of sharing the gospel. We have to be willing at a certain point to take a risk, to take a chance, to walk across the room, to make the ask, to establish the relationship, to make a new connection. Jesus pursues, and because Jesus has pursued us, we're free to pursue others. And what we see, what we see, here's a, uh, do I have any math people in here? I know i got lots of math people in here. A few. Okay. So you, all you math people are way smarter than me. But I figured I'd come up with a math formula. So maybe I could just, you know, reach you guys a little bit. Um, this is really simple. This is like first grade math formula. So we're going to put this up on a slide right here. Our formula. And this is really a summation of this handout right here. This is how we believe God changes lives. This is just the depiction. This is the methodology. Once again, he doesn't fill up a a stadium. He doesn't write in the sky. Rather, he does it one life and relationship at a time. He does it with truth. The truth of who he is. He does it with grace, his message. His message, the, the good news of the gospel, which is grace upon grace, that God has not come to condemn you, but he's come to restore you, that he's come to love you. And then there's time. There's time as those relationships uh, have time to to cook, to to incubate. And out of that comes change. And inside of our life groups, inside of our friendships, inside of our church, this is the formula that God's been using for 2,000 years. That with faithful faithful proclamation of the gospel, sharing the truths of who Jesus is, allowing people to experience grace that we don't shame them and judge them for their brokenness and their past and we don't make them feel excluded because they're different than us rather we extend them grace and we extend them hope and we extend them love and we do this week in week out this is where the time comes in it's not a one-time thing where you just hit someone over the head a drive-by truthing this is ongoing this is regular this is constant and with I mean this this is how all relationships go this is how parenting goes this is how disciple making goes so who are those people who are those people in your life that God has called you to share the truth of the gospel with who Jesus is what does it look like for you to extend them grace to, to not flinch or blink when you hear the bad stuff when you hear about the junk when you hear the brokenness but you, you stick right there with them when things get hard you let them know there's more grace for that and then time That you're consistent, that you're faithful, that you're there, that you're present, that you love them. So what we wanted to do is um, put together kind of a handout and in some ways a a roadmap and uh, a summary of all these different things that we've been talking about at Redemption for the last couple months. You'll notice we talk about discipleship all the time because we believe that's the one mission of the church. We're here to make disciples. We want to see more and more people meet Jesus and follow Jesus and love Jesus. We want to make disciples. And so we've talked very honestly and clearly about what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who is becoming more like Jesus in all of their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not that you're doing it on your own, but because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're able to live out this new life. Not because you're white-knuckling it and you're angry about it, but because you're excited about it and you can't wait to follow Jesus and to trust Him and to repent of your sin and to sing songs of celebration and to give sacrificially and to serve faithfully. And then we've talked about discipleship, that there's already people right there in your life, and there's groups that we're putting together that you can join, and groups that you can be a part of, and life groups that we can't wait to um, see even more of, where we can make disciples of others by transferring biblical truths through the relationships that God has given us. So we've just talked about this. We want to make this as simple as we could. We talked about getting to know someone's story, about actually hearing where they're coming from before we try to subscribe to them what they need to do or what they should do. So just getting to know them. the second one, we've talked about finding out what do they want. What was the question Jesus asked in verse 37 tonight? He said, what do you want? What do you want? Because it all starts with what someone honestly wants. We can play games. We can go through the smoke and mirrors all day long of arguing about how did Jesus walk on water. But I always just like to go right there with people. What do you really want? What do you, do you you know? Do you really know what you want? Let's talk about that. What do you love? So having those conversations with people. And then as someone begins to walk with Jesus, we tell them about that new identity. Just like Peter got a brand new identity, we remind them that they have a new identity. And we're reminding each other all the time, you have a new identity. You're now found in Christ. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. You have a a new identity and a new nature. And you, the old is gone and the new has come and you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You don't have to hide. You don't have to feel guilty. But you have a new nature and you have a dad who loves you. And we want to encourage one another because life is hard. And suffering comes about. And um, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes like, I just feel really busy. And and I just need other people to remind me to stay the course and to be faithful and, and to keep on. And that encouragement means all the world, all in the world to me. And then honesty. Honesty and self-awareness because... We have a new identity and because we're secure in the gospel, we can be honest with each other. We can have meaningful conversations and it doesn't have to mean the end of the relationship. We can be honest with one another. And then, of course, just time that we're willing to be consistent and faithful and meeting and being around other people. And then we help them grow and understand their relationship in the church and the family because the church is not just an event. It's just not what we do here on Sunday afternoon, but it's how we live life together every day of the week. And then, to be honest, you guys have an enemy. Reminding people, praying for one another. You do have an enemy. An enemy that seeks to kill and destroy and devour you. And he's real. And he wants to bombard you with discouragement and remind you of lies and your past failures. But yet, as John tells us in his epistle, 1 John later on, he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. So you have nothing to fear from Satan. You have nothing to fear from your enemy because your enemy has been vanquished. But we need to be reminded of that. And then last week, we begin to multiply. We begin to make more and more disciples because this whole thing was always meant to be viral. It was always meant to push outward. And so, here's my question for you. Here's my question for myself, for all of us. Who's God called you to build love share the good news of the gospel. If God called you to intentionally begin making disciples of If we were to do this, if we were to take time, and maybe you guys can do this later on, but if we were to just turn over our sheets and begin to write out all the clusters of relationships that we have, I think we'd be networked throughout almost all of Seattle. Between the people that you recreate with, the people you shop with, the people you work with, Family members, the people you went to school with, if we were being, just write out these clusters. Just think, who can I go and tell? Who can I go and share the gospel with? Who can I go and love? Because this was always meant to be viral. I want to see the gospel break out in Seattle. I want to see it go viral again. I want more and more of earth becoming like heaven. Jesus break in break into our lives break into this church and break into our communities Let's pray. Jesus thank you for, for condescending down to us that you would come off your rightful throne in heaven that you would take on a body in which you would know what it's like to suffer and hurt and to experience loss, that you could identify with us. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who's not far removed and distant, but you're near and you show us that it truly is one life at a time, that every person in this room is loved by you, that they're made in your image and you deeply care about them. You know their name. Even before they know you, you know their name. So God, I just ask that you would fill us with a sense of encouragement and excitement about how the gospel might spread and break out inside our church and our communities and our neighborhood that it would go viral that we would reach out and we would love people because this message of grace is truly irresistible that the the picture that John paints for us of who you are is truly unique and extraordinary and so my hope, my prayer is that Jesus you would continue to just make yourself clear and known to our hearts, to our lives, and that we would make You clear and known to the world around us where there are so many misconceptions of who You are. So Jesus, I ask that You would change what we want, that what we would want would be You, that we would be satisfied in You, that there would be joy in You, that we would have delight for You in following You, even when it's hard and confusing. So Jesus, allow us to be a people who pursue You, And love you as you pursued and loved us. And we can then in turn reach out and love others. Amen.